We all love a good story, don't we? Now, my family loves good stories. My kids love good stories. They love it when I tell them stories. They, they tell stories to each other. We all love a good story. And, you know, the church has some of the best stories. Some of the best stories you can talk about are in the church. The, the Protestant Reformation is one of my favorite stories in the church. Okay, if, maybe you remember like Martin Luther going to the Wittenberg uh, church and nailing his 95 theses on the wall. They maybe read about it, heard about it uh, some 500 plus years ago. And what, one of the reasons that made that story just so unique and so exciting is is the, the Protestant church, they were protesting the Roman Catholic church. And so Martin Luther, and the primary thing that they're protesting is the Roman Catholic use of indulgences. And so Luther, he goes, and he nails the 95 Thesis on there, and indulgences is to say, uh, you know, if you do this, if you pay this, then you can get your parents out of purgatory, get your loved ones out of purgatory a little earlier, so this is what you need to do. And Martin Luther comes along, and he says, you know, the church the, the priest, the state, it doesn't have the authority to say that. That ultimate authority does not lie in the church, in the priest, in the state. Ultimate authority lies in Jesus Christ and his word. And so Martin Luther, he says this, and, and the, the Reformation goes on to argue that it is by faith alone. It's, it's not faith plus works, faith plus indulgences, faith plus relics, faith plus money. It's simply by faith alone. And it's in Christ alone. Not Christ plus anything else, simply Christ alone. And the Reformation would argue that this is by God's grace alone. That salvation comes not by the grace of the church, the grace of the priest, the grace of the state. It's simply by God's grace alone. Alone, And this is all to the glory of God alone. It's not for the glory of the church, the glory of the priest, the glory of the state. It's simply for the glory of God alone. And so Martin Luther, he, he argues all this, and it's exciting, and you see it. And you know, Martin Luther, if you read about him, you come to find out that he was an energetic, bombastic kind of a guy. You know, if you're throwing a party and you're inviting the reformers over, Martin Luther's the, the, the reformer that you want to invite, okay? If you invite John Calvin, he just grabs a book, he sits in a corner and he reads a book somewhere, all right? You invite Zwingli, you got to keep an eye out for him because he's buttering up all the ladies in the room. Martin Luther, he's loud, he's opinionated, he's energetic, he's fun. He's the reformer you want to invite. And one of the key guys that Martin Luther was going up against at this time was a man named Erasmus. Erasmus was a humanist who basically said, if you try hard enough, if your works are good enough, that God will see that and he will bless you and you can go to heaven. So Martin Luther writes to Erasmus, and I thought it would be fun as we kind of tell the stories of the Reformation a little bit, that you hear Martin Luther in his own words, okay, just to get a sense of his personality. One of his greatest works as he responded to Erasmus, probably his greatest work, was titled On the Bondage of the Will, okay, and this is what he writes to Erasmus. He says, he writes, to the venerable master Erasmus of Rotterdam. Martin Luther wishes grace and peace in Christ. Isn't that nice? Just a real friendly way to begin. Then Luther goes on to write, 
says, your book struck me as so worthless and poor that my heart went out to you for having defiled your lovely, brilliant flow of language with such vile stuff. I thought it outrageous to convey material of so low a quality in the strappings of such rare eloquence. It is like using gold and silver dishes to carry garden rubbish or dung. You seem to have had more of an inkling of this yourself, for you were reluctant to undertake the task of writing because I suppose your conscience warned you that whatever literary resources you might bring with you into the fray, you would not be able to impose them on me, but that I should see through all your meritorious verbiage to the vile stuff beneath. For though I am crude in speech, yet by the grace of God I am not crude in understanding. With Paul I dare to claim that I have understanding and you have not. Though I freely grant, as I must, that you have eloquence and I have not. So that's a little bit of Luther in his own words, and it really just goes downhill from there, okay? But those are some of the stories of the, of the Reformation, and you get a picture of what that time was like. We have great stories in the church, rich stories of our, of our faith and how it was lived out, and, and those are important to know. And, you know, we've got exciting stories here and now, what's going on in our church, to hear stories of men praying for people in their office, to hear stories of people reaching out to others in the community and having lunches and this discipleship stuff that's happening. And we have great stories going on in the church today, but, and it's fun to tell the stories. It's exciting to tell the stories. It gets you a little revved up and energized. But have you ever thought what would happen if the story stopped? What if you stopped telling the stories of the Reformation? What if we stopped telling the stories of what's going on in our church today? I want to give you a picture of that this morning. Go ahead, turn with me to Judges chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. Judges 2, verses 8 through 15. The thing is, every family leaves a legacy. Every church family leaves a legacy. Every family leaves a legacy. Whether the stories are told or whether the stories stop, every family leaves a legacy. And so the question becomes, what is the legacy that we're leaving? Let's go ahead. Judges 2, verses 8 through 15. It writes, And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in the Timnath years in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the, land, into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies." Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. To give you a little background on the book of Judges, 
you need to know that the book of Judges follows the book of Joshua. Okay, you know this, and that's important because the book of Joshua follows the book of Deuteronomy. At the end of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses dies. Okay, Moses dies, and Joshua becomes the leader of the Israelites. All right, at long last, the Israelites, they've been given permission to enter the promised land. And during the time of Moses, they got close to the promised land and they looked in, but they lost their nerve. They got close and they said, oh man, how are we ever going to take the land? I know God said we should take the land, but how are we ever going to take the land? Those people are huge. They, they, they look massive. We're like grasshoppers. There, there's no way we can take the land. And so they lose their nerve. God doesn't think much of that. And they end up wandering around in the wilderness for about 40 years. Then Joshua comes in and he leads with some measure of confidence and strength and trust. And, and they go in and they possess the land. Not all of it. They don't, they don't go in and do it just right. They don't follow God's orders exactly. But they go in and they begin to possess some of the land. But now Joshua has died. And they don't know who's in charge. No, no, nobody's in charge. Not only do they not know who's in charge, did you listen to this? The Israelites have forgotten who God is and what God had done for their people. You see, the stories have stopped. There arose a generation who did not know God or the things that God had done for Israel. And this is an ominous warning for us today. Because you need to understand that 85% of baby boomers and Gen X had some experience, some exposure to church. That has completely flipped. Millennials and Gen Z, 15% of us have had some experience to church. What happens when the stories stop? What happened? And how does that happen? I mean, look at this. That's the first question, right? How does it happen? That a generation arises that doesn't know what God had done for the people. How does that happen? How does it happen that Moses can take a people and lead them from slavery in Egypt and out of that into freedom? And that story just doesn't come up anymore? You just don't share that? You just don't talk about that anymore? How does it happen that God can cause manna to come down from heaven and you just don't share that story? How does it happen that water can come out of a rock to, to provide water for all the people of Israel and you just don't share that to the next generation? How does it happen that you can march into the land and you can walk around Jericho and, the, and then after walking around seven times, the walls come down and that story is just not told anymore? How does that happen? Well, you know. Because we do the same thing, don't we? We just get busy. We just live our lives. You know, it was one thing when the Israelites were wandering around in the wilderness and they didn't have a whole lot to do, but now they're in the land. Now, now they've got jobs, now they've got a home, now they've got kids they're raising, now they've got a yard to tend to. You just get busy. And you forget to share the stories. The stories of what God has done for them. 
The stories of who God is and who they are. See, here's the problem. When the stories stop, there's an identity crisis. When the stories stop, there's an identity crisis. The people of Joshua's generation, they were to train their kids, and their kids were to train their kids. But somewhere along the line, you know what happens? And it happens to us. They say, hey, it would be a good idea if we had a family devotion, it would be a good idea if we prayed with our kids at night, it would be a good idea if we, if we did these things, if we tried to disciple them in this way. And then what happens? Maybe you try and it feels a little awkward, doesn't go well, maybe the kids aren't into it. You say, ah, forget that. Maybe, maybe you just get so busy that you have these great intentions and you never follow through. Maybe, maybe you try it and you just don't feel like you're able and you say to yourself, you know what, I will take them to the church institution and I will have the professionals do it and they'll probably tell the stories better than I will anyway. And what happens is the stories stop and then they don't know who they are. There's an identity crisis. Who do, who, who do I listen to? I've got all kinds of voices. When you don't tell them who they are, the world will. When the older generation failed to teach the younger generation who they were, what it meant to be an Israelite, the privilege of representing God to the world and how they were stepping into a legacy of God's continued faithfulness and his continued provision. When they failed to tell them that, when they didn't hear that they were designed by God, created in the image of God, designed for relationship with God, designed to go and impact and be a light to the surrounding nations, when they didn't hear that, when those stories stopped, there's an identity crisis and the world is quick to step in and say, you know, you just define life however you want to. You, you just do what seems right to you. Do what feels best for you. Whatever you want to do, you can do it. Believe big. If you do not tell them who they are, the world will. And the world always gets it wrong. You've heard me tell you that before. If you do not tell the next generation who they are, the world will, and the world always gets it wrong. And it's bad to have an identity crisis. It's bad not to know who you are, not to know who you were made to be, not to know your reason for being and your purpose in life. It's bad not to know those things. That's bad. But the next problem is much, much worse. It's incredibly worse. I want to read the scripture to you again. I just want you to listen because you're going to see this problem even before I spell it out for you. Okay, just listen. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. And they bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. 
How does that happen? You know, oftentimes we tend to look for some big crisis in the faith. You know, and we imagine these scenarios. If there's an Islamic terrorist and he has a gun to my head and he says, do you believe in Jesus? And we tell ourselves, I will stand strong. I will not deny Jesus. I will believe. But oftentimes it's not really this big Islamic terrorist kind of threat that gets most of us. It's little compromise after little compromise after little compromise. See, there there wasn't a big crisis in the faith for the Israelites. It was just little by little by little. God had told the Israelites to go in to possess the land, to wipe out the Canaanites. They don't do it. They, they, They just make a little compromise. It doesn't seem so bad. I mean, do we really have to follow it completely? And so they make little compromise, little compromise, little compromise. And then what happens? It kind of goes like this. There's an Israelite guy. He meets a Canaanite woman. And she's beautiful. She's nice. She's friendly. She's sweet. She's got a great personality. And they look at it. They say, hey, you guys make such a nice couple. You know, there's only one problem. She doesn't believe in the one true God. But you know what they say, oh, it's okay, it'll be all right. After all, love conquers all. So they get married. She's in the kitchen one day, and she says to him, you know, can I put a little goddess of one of my goddesses here in the kitchen? It would help me make just great meals for you. I, I want to be able to cook well, and this, this would encourage me. He says, hey, I want to eat well. Sounds good. Yeah, put your little goddess right in there. After all, happy wife, happy life. Then they're laying down in bed one day. She says to him, you know, I'd like to put a little goddess in the bedroom. This is the goddess of fertility. I want to have lots of babies for you. And he says, oh, I want lots of babies. That, that sounds good. Yeah, you can put your goddess in there. That, that would be fine. Before you know it, there's little gods and little goddesses in every room of the house. And she says to him one day, you know, I don't really want to go worship with you anymore. I mean, your God, this, this one true God of Israel, that's such an exclusive statement, you know. It doesn't make me feel very good. He says, I, I understand, I get that. We, we don't have to go. Does this sound at all familiar I mean, it's several thousand years ago, but the stories haven't changed. It's the same thing today. It's little compromise after little compromise after little compromise. And all of a sudden, you're looking, you say, how did this even happen? How did we get here? How how did my life look like this? We look for the major crisis in the faith. And in the meantime, we make little deals with God. And we pray for success. And we pray, God, give me success in this job. Help me find my dream job. And we pray, God, help me find the, the, the woman or the man who I'm supposed to marry. Or God, I, you know, I messed up over here. Can you help me? Can you get me out of this situation? God, if you will do this, if you'll help me get that job, if you'll help me find that spouse, if you'll, if you'll get me out of this situation, I will serve you forever. And God does. You, you get a job, you find a spouse, you get out of the situation. And you serve him for a little while. 
And then what happens, you kind of go back and there's the allure of more success. There's, there's something else and you begin to make little compromise after little compromise after little compromise. And what we expect is God to send down lightning bolts, right? Stand back, watch out, here comes the lightning bolt, we're all in trouble. But God doesn't do that. What he does is much worse, much, much worse. When the stories stop, God allows you to live out a false identity. Did you see that? He allows you to live a false identity, a life without him. Sometimes we think we're okay because God doesn't strike us dead. It's worse. He just lets you go. Did you see that? He, he gave them away to the plunderers who would plunder them. He sold them to the enemies, their surrounding enemies. He just let them go. You, you see it in Romans, don't you? You remember in Romans, people who exchange the truth of God for a lie and they engage in all kinds of terrible behaviors and we want the next verse to say and then God, he, he argued with them, he chased down after them, he got them to think correctly. It doesn't. It says God gave them over to their sinful desires of the flesh. There's the story of the rich young ruler, right? He comes, hey, what do I have to do to be your disciple? I'll do anything. Tell, tell me what I got to do to be your disciple. Sell everything you have, give to the poor, then come follow me. It's the same command that he gave to all the other disciples, right? And what does the guy do? I can't. And he walks away. And we want the next verse to say, and Jesus ran down and chased down after him and said, no, you can't do this. You're making the biggest mistake of your life. You gotta come back. You gotta, you gotta follow me. You gotta be my disciple. Jesus doesn't do that. He just let him go. We, he just let him walk away. God pushes us away in one hand. When you choose to live a life without him, he says, all right, if that's the identity you want, go. And then at the same time, he's beckoning us back. If you have someone who's walked away and God's just said, go, you need to also know that as he pushes us away with one hand, he beckons us back with the other. It's the story of the prodigal son, right? The son says, dad, you're dead to me. Just give me my inheritance now. And, and what does the father say? Fine, breaks his heart. Here's, here's your inheritance. Go, live a life without me. And at the same time as the son is living a life without him and he's going around, he's messing with the pigs and the prostitutes and all kinds of stuff. What is the father doing? He's scanning the hillside and saying, come home. Go with one hand and please come home with the other. This is the goodness of our God. He allows us to live a life without him, but at the same time, he says, please don't. Please come home. You read through the book of Judges, and you realize there's this terrible cycle of sin. And at the end of the book comes the diagnosis, why these cycles of sin are taking place. And, and it says this, that the people did what was right in their own eyes. That the world came and whispered to them, you live whatever life you want. 
You do it however you want. Whatever seems best to you, whatever will make you happy, whatever you'll enjoy, be the best you. And what do they do? They do just that. They do what's right in their own eyes. You know, the, the Israelites still haven't recovered from that. They still haven't possessed all the land that they were supposed to possess and they will one day possess. They make all these promises, all these little side deals, little deals with high prices. And when the story stopped, there's this identity crisis. The next generation, they did not know who they were because they were trying to identify themselves. And when they did not know who they were and they were just living life, God says, go ahead. Live out this false identity, a life without me. We read an old story like Judges, and we see that people haven't really changed a whole lot. You know, people still make little side deals with God. People still show up to church. Maybe you're here this morning thinking, all right, this is part of my penance for these mistakes I've made. I'm going to try to get right with God. I guess to get right with God, I need to go to church. Some of you have been coming a while. Maybe this is the last Sunday you'll be here because then you'll, well, I'm paid up now. You understand Coming to church is not something that we just do. It flows out of proper theology, right? Your Christology, what we believe about Jesus, tells us then who we are, that we are the sent people of God. This is missiology. We are to go. We are the sent ones. And then it's the ecclesia, the the called out sent ones of God now gathered together. If you do not understand that you are sent and you skip right to the gathering together, you miss the whole point of what church is about. The church does not have a mission. The mission has a church. It's the proper theological order. But if you miss it, you just go to wherever you go. And and this is what the people are doing. Instead of living out of the overflow of God's work and will in their lives, instead of God's work and will flowing in them and through them the way Christ is supposed to do in in, in a way that your life never runs dry because you are sent people always on mission, you just begin to serve other gods. Maybe it's a moralistic God. Maybe it's a church institutional God. But it's other gods. For the Israelites, it was the Baals, it was the Ashtaroth. They're just doing whatever they do. Sinfulness always ends in slavery. It always ends in slavery. Slavery to an institution. Slavery to a system. Slavery to the Baals. Slavery to the Ashtaroth. And the gods of this world, they will take you as a slave and lead you to places where you think you're making your own decision, but you're not. They're making it for you. Because you're owned. Jesus wants to set us free. That's what we're singing about. Free to go and live the life we were created to be. You know in these cycles of sin, throughout the book of Judges, there are always stories of grace. And the stories of grace come when there's a strong leader who emerges on the scene. A strong leader like Deborah, who who led the Israelites at that time with, with a measure of strength. A strong leader like Gideon, who even though he wasn't sure at first, God used him then to be a powerful leader. In these cycles of sin, there are stories of grace. But when the leader, the strong leader falls away, the people fall away. 
God is calling you and me as the leaders of his church, as the sent called out ones, to lead the next generation. If you do not lead, the world will tell the next generation who they are, and the world always gets it wrong. I want to walk you through some ways of how to lead. The, uh, the Israelites had this idea at the, at the end of Joshua, Joshua 22, they had this idea um, that they wanted to be able to impart on the next generation the stories of what God had done for them. And so they set up these memorial stones so they could go and they could take the next generation there and they could, they could say, hey, remember how God led us out of Egypt. Remember how God provided for us in the wilderness. Remember how God set apart this land for us and that we can possess it. Remember the faith of Moses and the faith of Joshua. They, they, they set these stones so they could take the next generation and tell them the stories. Only one problem, they didn't follow through. There were, there were good intentions, but they, did, they didn't follow through with it. It was a great idea, but they didn't do it. We must tell the stories of what God has done. We must take our children, our grandchildren, we must take the next generation, millennials, Gen Z, whoever, Generation Alpha, we must take them to the scriptures. And not just in a let me read the story to you kind of way, but hey, did you know? And tell them the stories of the scriptures. They must know the stories of the scriptures. Uh, the children's ministry here at Century, we want to help you do that. Okay, I mean, Brian, he's got like a parent cue card he sends out each week to help you kind of walk through it. Maybe you don't even have any kids over there. Go grab one anyway. Use it with grandkids. Use it with someone else. Help tell the stories of the scripture. Because if you do not tell them the stories of God, someone else will come along and tell them some other stories. And what stories will they believe? And I know how it can get sometimes. You, you have the best intentions and you try and you sit there. I want to tell you these stories and you just feel awkward and you don't know quite what you're doing. It's a little uncomfortable. You know, it doesn't have to be this like mapped out devotion, like family devotion. Now, that's great. And if that works, that's great. But what's even more impactful is when you're just riding in the car and you're just having a conversation about the day, you say, you know, that, that reminds me of this story that I read about. Or they're telling you about school and something going on. You say, you know, I really struggled with that when I was in school. But here's what God showed me. Or if I had it to do all over again, if I, if I had the wisdom then that I had now, here's what I would have done. It's, maybe they're talking to you about their sports, their, their music, whatever, and they're telling you the stories of life, and you're taking those stories, and you're sharing, you're being vulnerable, you're sharing your own life, and you're also taking them to the scriptures so that they know the stories of God. It's, it's best lived out in just the context of everyday life. If it is not the outflow of who you are, they look at that and they say, well, are, are you just trying to score religious points here? Or is this real? Is this deep conviction of who you are? And it's never too late to start. Maybe you say, ah, I wish I'd have done that. It's never too late to start. If you do not tell them who they are, the world will, and the world always gets it wrong. You know, 
But it's not just the stories of what God has done. It's also the stories of what God will do. God's vision for their lives. Tell the stories of God's vision for their lives. You know, the Israelites, they were living as if the next generation was just going to pick it all up by osmosis. Right? Oh, they're just going to see it. They're going to know. They're going to believe because they're watching us. And, you know, I I guess we don't have to say anything. Somehow they're just going to magically know everything. That doesn't happen. I mean, they never bothered to sit down and say, God's vision for you is to be a light to the surrounding nations. God's laws that he has put in place, they are for your good. And here's why we're going to live according to them. They are for your good and for his glory. This is why we do what we do. And God has big purposes for you. If you're not telling the next generation that God has designed you to be a disciple maker, that this is, what, this is the purpose of your salvation, this is who he has called you to be, that you are to share Jesus and impact people, God's made you for this. If you do not tell them that, then the other people will come along, the world will come along, and they will say, here's the American dream. Find that job, find success, get money, get stuff, and it will fill you up. And it will be a life centered on themselves, a false identity. And God will say, if that's what you want, and at the same time, please come home. You must tell them God's vision for who they are. And this is why... The gathering of God's people is so important, right? If church is just what you do, you miss the reason for coming. This is not just what we do. This flows out of our mission that we are sent to go and impact people. And as we go and as we live on mission, the sent people of God to transform the world, it's the biggest mission in the world, Starbucks has this saying, you know, that their mission is to get a cup of coffee in the hands of every person on the planet. The next generation must realize, you must realize that the vision of the church, the mission of the church is bigger than that. And if, if, because if they see that that's a bigger mission, what do they want? They want the biggest mission. They want to make the biggest impact they can possibly make. The impact of the church, the mission of the church is the biggest mission on the face of the earth. It's to transform the world so that the kingdom of earth will look like the kingdom of heaven. It's to influence uh, the people created by God so that they can reclaim, dust off, reclaim the image of God that they were created to display. It's the biggest mission out there. But if you give them less, if they think it's less, they will walk away for something bigger. But you need to understand, there, there is no meeting that takes place anywhere. No meeting of Congress, no meeting of the United Nations, no meeting of the Oval Office, no meeting in the Senate, no meeting anywhere that begins to compare with the significance and the importance of when God's people gather together to be equipped to transform the world. This is the most important meeting that will ever take place if we live according to our mission. If we don't, it's just a moralistic gathering of a country club, if you get it out of order. And the next generation has no desire for a country club. 
So you invite them into this vision of who God has created them to be. It's the biggest vision in the place of the earth. And one more thing, you invite them to take part in the stories. You invite them to live the stories. It's not just something they hear about. It's not just this grand vision, but you invite them to be part of it. There's a struggle going on, and you say, hey, here's what's going on in our family. I need you to pray about this with us. Here's here's what's happening. What do you think? Or we're going to go, and we're going to serve these people. Come on, this is why we're doing what we're doing. This is why we're going to the hospital. This is why we're having people in our home. This is why we're making our home a ministry center, because we are the sent people of God. And you invite them to live the stories. If the stories of the faith just happen at the institution, they will walk away because they want to live something that is transformative. They actually want to live the life that they read about in the Gospels, in the book of Acts, as we study through the book of Ephesians. This is what they want. You know, we, it is my hope that the first camp experience that, you, that your children have is the camp experience with you. It is my hope that the first mission experience that your children have is a mission experience with you. It is my hope that the first Bible study that your children have is a Bible study with you. It is my hope that you will not just pawn it off on the institution of the church, but you will embrace the responsibility of passing it on to the next generation. Because if it just comes from us, listen, we can help as church leaders support you but we cannot pass it off to them. You are the main discipler in the lives of your children. And if you do not accept that responsibility, they will walk away because I'm just another voice. So I want to equip you to be the primary influencers in the life of your children. I want to equip you to be major influencers in the life of your grandchildren, in the life of the next generation that you are interacting with. I want to encourage you to make all these special experiences that they happen first with you. And then you're able to ask them, hey, I saw you when you were doing that. How did that encourage you? I saw you when no one was looking, how you just went over and you befriended that person. What, what, what made you do that? What was hard about that? How, how did that encourage you? I, I, I saw you when, you know, you picked up and you just did the job when no one was asking. Would you do that again? What, what, what did you learn from that experience? I, you know, when we went together and we, and we served those people and we dropped off that meal... How did that make you feel? What what was exciting? What was hard? What was fun? What was difficult? As we studied together, how did you break down the passage? Do you want to see how I'm doing it? Make those experiences happen with you. You got to invite them to live the stories. And they should be lived with you. You're the main influencer. We have this misconception sometimes that we've got to be perfect. 
And then we got to pass on, and you know, our kids got to see that we've got it all together. We got it all buttoned up. We're perfect people. And then what happens? They have struggles. They have difficulties. And they think, you know what? Mom and dad, they're, they're perfect. I, I don't think I've ever seen them make a mistake. They've never come to me and said, I'm sorry for X, Y, and Z. Will you please forgive me? And so then they say, well, I need to talk to someone who does have struggles. I, I need to talk to someone who does have pains, who does have hurts, because maybe they'll understand me. And they go. And the world is happy to tell them stories. And then whose stories will they believe? When Pierce was younger, I used to tell him stories at night all the time. He'd always ask for a story. Daddy, tell me a story, tell me a story. And so I'd tell him stories. And, you know, I'd get into it. And I'd use different voices. And I'd act it out. And I'd have all kinds of fun. And then, you know, there were several times he got into this period where I guess he was getting tired, I don't know, but he would just stop me mid-story. Daddy, 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 that's enough. You can go now. And I did. But you know, I've only just begun telling him the stories of what God has done, of God's vision for his life. I've only just begun inviting him into the stories of what it looks like to follow Jesus. And I'm not going to walk away from that. Because if I do, whose stories, what stories will he hear? And even worse, what stories will he believe? See, all of us are leaving a legacy. What kind of legacy are you leaving? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you invite us into your story. That you don't just save us and then send us on to heaven and to be with you, as great as that day will be. But God, you've saved us with purpose. You've saved us with meaning. You've, you've allowed us to be a part of your story here, to impact others. God, forgive us for when we do anything less. God, help us to live um, your truth. Help us to leave a legacy that matters so that the next generation will not grow up to not know who you are or what you have done for us. But they will be convinced of the fact that you are the true God of the universe and that you've invited us into the biggest transformational mission on the planet. Help us to live this well. We need your help to do it. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and through the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.